Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Derek Upham. Derek led Johann Banner's cavalry all the way to the Regensburg Diet, and he would have captured the town itself only for the Danube's melting ice. Nice try, Derek. This, of course, is all a lie. If you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 68 of The Thirty Years' War. So, in the last episode, we delved into the abject misery and suffering that Europe was facing into by the late 1630s, after more than 20 years of war. But as we know, this is the Thirty Years' War, so we still have some way to go before the story's finished, and the war must go on in the meantime. Today we're resuming our story from the year 1640, a nice round year, but the protagonists were no closer to solving the issues that brought them to the conflict in the first place. By now, the war was changing colour in many respects. There were a few major victories on the battlefield still left to be had, but there was a lot of backroom negotiation, or dare we say, diplomacy, still in store, as the two camps squared up to one another again for the campaigning season of 1640, and it was becoming difficult to deny that the Habsburg side was losing some of its sheen. The Catalan Revolt, which we visited in episode 66, was soon to be joined by a Portuguese one, and this drain on Spain could only have serious knock-on effects for the Austrians, who traditionally relied upon Madrid for money, men and material. Would this relationship change? Would Emperor Ferdinand III go on without King Philip IV of Spain? Or would the Emperor take matters into his own hands, see the writing on the wall, and surge forward to make a new and better peace that could satisfy Swedes, French, and even the Dutch all in one go. But it wasn't all roses on the Allied side either, though in a stronger position, the Swedes still had a long way to go before their position would be secure in Germany. Depending on what day you asked Chancellor Oxenstierna, the alliance with France was by no means desirable, especially if it reduced Swedish freedom of action and the French hadn't exactly been hugely impressive, with the exception of the Rhine Theatre, where Alsace had been penetrated, and French forces were now across the Rhine River in a secure base. And what of the Dutch? How would they react to the decline in Spanish power, now that Iberia itself seemed to be fracturing? All this remained to be seen, but there was no question that after over two decades of warfare ripping through the continent, matters had taken a turn, 
and they could only go on like this for so much longer. We're going to get into it today. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. The PhD is going fine. We're in the home-ish stretch. I'm not going to jinx myself before we get too far. Some of you have asked what the story is with the sound at the moment. Apparently it's a bit echoey and apologies for that. But I've done my best. I've thrown a few pillows and some blankets around. So hopefully until a more permanent solution is available, this should suffice. Thanks for sticking with us either way, history friend. It's been a pleasure. And without you, I couldn't do any of this. So yeah, thanks so much. Alrighty, let's go to spring 1640. I say, as I have always said, that there are many arguments to dissuade me from the French alliance. I have had experience of their tricks in former years. They commit hostile acts against us under a mask of friendship when we remonstrate with them about taking Brissac and how they debauched the army of Bernhard of Weimar. They make long speeches and trot out excuses and shrug their shoulders. Our late king often tore his hair at the impertinencies he had to put up with from them. But what could he do? Necessity is a great argument, and for a handful of gold, one must often sacrifice reputation. This was how Swedish Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna described the strategic alliance with France by 1640. The very topic of that alliance was a strange, often controversial one in Oxenstierna's Sweden. Above all, the Chancellor didn't want to see Sweden's freedom of action reduced. If an opportunity arose for Sweden to get what it wanted from the Emperor, Oxenstierna didn't want France to be in a position to block that opportunity. In short, the Chancellor valued the French alliance, but not so much that he was willing to put Swedish interests on the line to defend it. At least not yet. In 1638, the Treaty of Hamburg had been signed, but contrary to what is often said about that agreement, it didn't commit both sides to make peace as one. Instead, it compelled Swedish and French agents to negotiate and cooperate together, still a step up from mere subsidies and military arrangements, but not a diplomatic union or a pledge to make peace as one party. This latter characteristic of the alliance would come once this three-year agreement was up for renewal in 1641. Only then, with peace negotiations already underway in their preliminary stage, would Oxenstierna concede that unifying the French and Swedish war effort in that way was desirable. The situation would likely have been different in 1640 if the French intervention had dramatically changed the strategic situation of the war. But in many respects, perhaps with the exception of the fact that maybe in time the French strength would begin to tell, and with the notable exception of some military successes like the capture of Brissac in late 1638, the situation for Sweden hadn't fundamentally changed by way of France's war successes. The main Swedish army under Johann Banner was still boxed into northern Germany, and France was still too preoccupied with the Spanish to dedicate their powers solely to defeating the emperor. Was Oxenstierna looking for the kind of transformative invasions of Germany which the late Gustavus had directed? Such scenes were only eight years old by 1640, but they seemed a world removed from Sweden's current strategic position that had forced Banner to manoeuvre around a shrinking theatre as a growing number of imperial soldiers engaged in the pursuit. Swedish military performance in the late 1630s was hardly glamorous. Much like the French, there had been some bright spots such as the Battle of Wittstock in 1636 or Chemnitz in 1638, 
but these victories couldn't turn the tide. Instead, Banner had served as both a thorn and a distraction. He drew soldiers away from other fronts, like the Rhine, and enabled the French to take advantage, like in the capture of Brissac. With France now established in Alsace, did this mean that at last Cardinal Richelieu would ensure the favour was returned? A significant French distraction surely might force the Holy Roman Emperor to divert forces away from northern Germany and against the French. Then perhaps Johann Banner would be in a position to direct his small army, about 10,000 strong, against a vital pressure point. That Banner had been able to spend the winter of 1639-40 in Bohemia suggested that this turn in fortunes was at hand, and yet by the spring of 1640, the emperor retained the preponderance of power in the region, and a great French invasion across the Rhine, at least to Oxenstierna's knowledge, had yet to reach the planning stage. Oxenstierna was not the only figure to present a running commentary on the situation by 1640. Richelieu too took the time to describe the situation to King Louis XIII in his political testament, and it is from this great resource which we can take the following interesting tidbits regarding French strategy. It is an action of singular wisdom to have kept all the forces of the enemies of your state occupied for ten years by the armies of your allies, using your treasury and not your weapons. Then, when your allies could no longer survive on their own, it was an act of both courage and wisdom to enter into open war. This shows that in managing the security of the kingdom, you have acted like those stewards who, having been careful to save money, know when to spend it to prevent a greater loss. Richelieu then provided his view on each of the conflicts that France was involved in or had been involved in. The war in Germany was virtually unavoidable, since this part of Europe had been the theatre where it had opened long before. Turning his attention to the Spanish Netherlands, Richelieu remarked that although the war there did not achieve the success one might have expected, nonetheless it was still impossible not to regard it as advantageous in its aims. This was certainly a generous interpretation of French progress in that theatre. One might have reasonably expected a Franco-Dutch alliance directed against Brussels to have borne much more fruit after five years of cooperation. We might even expected the French and the Dutch to squeeze the Spanish Netherlands on both sides, but Richelieu was at least correct that the central aims of this theatre were sound. Spain's Netherlands were weakening, and by applying pressure here, Madrid could not divert its resources elsewhere. Richelieu then addressed the war in the Valtelline passes, where the struggle for those Alpine regions that formed part of the Spanish road were found. The war there was necessary so as to encourage the Italian princes to take up arms by removing their fear of the Germans. The war in Italy was also of great importance, as the campaign for getting the Duke of Savoy on side was vital, because the Milanese, the heart of the states possessed by Spain, was the territory he had to attack. During the course of the war, Richelieu added with some optimism, addressing his king directly, Nothing went wrong for you without seeming to have happened only for your glory. Contrary to Oxenstierna's interpretation of events, Richelieu then took the time to explain to his king why France had negotiated and warred in the manner that it did. As far as Richelieu was concerned, the French record in both these respects was flawless, and the reputation of France was spotless because she had honoured her obligations to her allies. 
Oxenstierna might have disagreed with this interpretation, but it's worth examining what the wily cardinal said. Your Majesty did not enter the war until it was unavoidable, and did not leave it until he had to. This observation sheds great glory on Your Majesty, because when at peace, France was often urged by its allies to take up arms, though reluctant to do so, and during the war, his enemies often proposed a separate peace, but he would never consider it because France could not be separated from the interests of its allies. Those who know that Your Majesty was abandoned by several princes allied to France, and that nonetheless he did not wish to abandon anyone, that moreover, some of those who remained loyal let him down in several important matters, yet still received from Your Majesty the treatment they were promised, Those people, I say, understand that if the good fortune of your majesty is apparent in the success of his endeavours, his virtue is no less great than his good fortune. I know well that if France had broken its word, its reputation would have suffered badly, and the least loss of this kind means that a great prince has nothing further to lose. Oxenstierna would probably have taken issue with this interpretation of French policy as inherently honourable when, as the Chancellor noted after all, France had debauched the army of Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar, effectively bribing him into the French camp. That act of making a French subject out of an army led by the veterans of Gustavus Adolphus still stung at the Swedish Chancellor, but he would certainly have agreed with portions of this final extract where Richelieu delicately presented the French military disappointments to date, writing, If they consider further the natural frivolity of this nation, the impatience of its soldiers who are little accustomed to hard work, and finally, the weakness of the instruments which by necessity you had to use on the occasions, among which I hold the first place, they will have to admit that nothing made up for the failings of your implements except the excellence of your majesty, who is the artisan. The notion that King Louis XIII's majesty, whatever that was, somehow made up for the French military blunders, the underhanded diplomatic tactics or the disappointing returns from having France as an ally must have rung somewhat hollow. But what Oxenstierna would not deny was that Sweden needed France. And the reverse was also true. The best way to make the most of Swedish military prowess and French finance was to double down in their respective theatres and engage with the enemy to seize crushing military victories, flip the emperor's allies back to their side, and use the strength of French finance to support proxy wars in various theatres that would chip away at the Habsburg position. But neither the Holy Roman Emperor nor the King of Spain were willing to make this easy for them. As 1640 dawned, Spain was facing into a domestic crisis in Catalonia, which would only get worse. A disenchanted Portuguese populace that were soon to revolt and an unrewarding Dutch war that was deteriorating beyond her control. Not even the Cardinal Infant, that hero of Nordlingen, now based in Brussels, seemed capable of rescuing the situation. The war with France had been impossible to quickly resolve, as Count Olivares' best shot misfired in 1636, and Spain was now prevented from directly aiding the Emperor, thanks to the severing of those land routes that made up the Spanish road. Not that, as Olivares appreciated, Spain would have had much to spare for Vienna, even if the road to the emperor had been cleared. Perhaps, then, it was time to place Spanish interests ahead of the wider Habsburg dynasties? Interestingly, this was exactly what the emperor was mulling over in early 1640. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To begin with, Emperor Ferdinand III had been effectively forced to summon the Imperial Date, a gathering that had not assembled in 27 years. The last time it had been called in 1613, confessional hostility had grounded to a halt. The Evangelical Union and Catholic League, remember those guys, had been at loggerheads, and the ailing Emperor Matthias, remember him, was unable to stem the tide. Ferdinand III had only been a toddler when that scene had taken place, but he was joined by stalwart allies who were alive and active at that time, Maximilian of Bavaria and John George of Saxony, who had been deeply concerned by those ill omens, and had lived through the troubling early years of the war, we imagine, with a large number of grey hairs. By January 1640, Ferdinand III was able to bring 44,000 men to Bohemia, where their main task was to defend against the threatening moves of Johann Banner's smaller force. Due to the necessity of reinforcing garrisons and other measures, though, the commander in the region was only able to gather 12,400 men into a mobile army. In addition to this force, Piccolomini possessed an army of 13,000 in Westphalia, near the border of the Dutch Republic, while John George of Saxony maintained an army just over 6,500 strong. Along the Rhine, it was known that Maximilian of Bavaria possessed 17,000 men, with an army consisting of 10,000 active effectives defending the lower part of that river against French incursions. Elsewhere in northern Germany, Brandenburg's army was effectively wiped out. Not only were the massive hosts of men some 100,000 men strong, now a thing of the past, it was also increasingly difficult for the country to support more than one major operation at a single time. While one theatre became active, the other was drained of troops, and defence became the order of the day. The dynamism of the war's earlier phases had definitely passed, along with the initial prosperity of the countryside that had been necessary to sustain those campaigns. The French and Swedes had also been joined by two new German players, who made up for the exit of Brandenburg and Saxony from their camp in 1635, 
George of Brunswick Luneburg was of the House of Velf, or Gelf, and ruled over lands south of the Danish border. With his capital in Hanover, Duke George's lands were situated in an important strategic position in the empire's northwest, and the importance was reflected in the marital contracts of his ancestors, linking the House of Welf with Brandenburg, Denmark and Saxony at various points in its history. Duke George's mother had been a daughter of King Christian III of Denmark, which made him cousin to the current Danish King Christian IV. By the end of the 17th century, Duke George's family would be indelibly associated with the city that he had made his capital, Hanover, and his House of Hanover would provide Britain with its Hanoverian line, thanks to intermarriage with the Palatine offspring of Frederick V and Elizabeth Stuart. In short, Duke George's descendants were destined to play a significant role in history, but in 1640, the aged Duke George was merely one of the upper mid-tier of German rulers who had determined to throw his lot in with the Franco-Swedes, thus frustrating his emperor's quest for a German peace. Further to the south of Duke George's domains was the complicated morass of Hesse. Hesse had been divided among four sons in the mid-16th century, which is why there were so many Hesses running around, but by 1640, half of these lines had died out and had been combined with the two main houses of Hesse. These were Hesse-Darmstadt, which sided with the emperor, and Hesse-Castle, which maintained its support first of Sweden and then of France. The lands of Hesse were sprawled across the River Mine, and like Brunswick-Luneburg to the north, they occupied a strategically important part of Germany. Unlike Duke George's lands, those of Hesse Castle were ruled by the regency of Amalie Elizabeth, who controlled the principality's affairs while her son, Duke William VI, was merely a child. Hesse-Castle was only able to field an army of a few thousand, and Amelie Elizabeth followed Duke George's lead in attaching her soldiers to Johann Banner's army in the spring of 1640. Eventful though the year was for other theatres, the campaigning season of 1640 in northern Germany mostly consisted of manoeuvring with little in the way of practical results. The summer was unseasonably cold and wet and bouts of plague continued to spread, even killing Johann Banner's second wife. Banner was obliged to withdraw from Bohemia and engage in several standoffs with the enemy, but no truly significant engagements took place, and certainly the balance of power was not fundamentally affected. Emperor Ferdinand had mostly monopolised his influence over South and Central Germany, but in the North, as 1640 became 1641, a decisive encounter proved frustratingly elusive. Something which the French and Swedes would have to bear in mind was that even with the lacklustre military returns from 1640, the fusing of Hanover and Hesse Castle to the Allied cause meant that both would have to be included in a final peace settlement. While the military situation in Germany didn't change in 1640 then, there was great activity on the diplomatic front. The Emperor would personally participate in one such activity, the Imperial Diet, which was hosted in Regensburg from September 1640 to October 1641. The reasons for hosting such an assembly at Regensburg were legion. Most urgently, perhaps, Ferdinand needed money from his vassals to maintain his imperial armies. Yet to receive these monies, the emperor was first required to summon all the states of the empire, 
and second, to hear the grievances of these estates. Interestingly, a theme which emerged from the Diet was one of amnesty. For some time, as established in the Peace of Prague five years before, the question of amnesty had animated those Germans who had fought against the Emperor in the war's early phases. Some of those that had made peace with the Emperor in 1635 had been reconciled with grievances, as the term went, insofar as they were now on good terms with Ferdinand, but had been forced to agree to difficult terms in order to reach that stage. Yet other German states, like Brunswick-Luneburg and Hesse-Kassel, had clearly refused to make peace with the Emperor and actually possessed small but still noteworthy armies of their own. It was these that Maximilian of Bavaria wished to court by extending the amnesty of the Peace of Prague to them, but other issues abounded. Some Catholics didn't want to return lands they had been given from rebels, some Protestants believed the earlier concessions didn't go far enough, and of course, the Palatinate was still a sore subject. The Emperor would only turn back the clock as far as 1628 or 27 at a push, but some were demanding that 1618 be the benchmark. Maximilian knew that he would either keep the lands which had been confiscated from other Germans, or he would be compensated for them by the Emperor, thus the burden would fall on Ferdinand, whatever the outcome. Like his father, though, Ferdinand III had no way of reimbursing his disaffected allies, nor did he know how to make everyone happy with whatever settlement the Diet could produce. What the Emperor did know, however, was that his coffers needed to be increased if the war was to be pursued successfully. To properly bring the full weight of Germany to bear against the French and Swedes as well, it was necessary that no Germans were left out. But bringing the likes of Hesse-Castle and Brunswick-Luneburg back into the imperial fold would mean making promises that seemed quite impossible to fulfil in 1640. So, Ferdinand made use of a vague mechanism where the concessions to repenting rebels would be placed under effective suspension until such a date as suited him. This understandably rankled Ferdinand's allies, who argued that this defeated the entire purpose of amnesty in the first place, and what German rebel would return to the Emperor for the promise that, at some undefined date in the future, their losses would be made good. Ferdinand could plead, fairly enough, that he had no other choice but to delay restitution. It was difficult enough even to hold an imperial diet while a war was underway, and he lacked the resources to make everyone happy. But the criticism proved accurate. No new converts to the imperial cause materialised. This fact, combined with the religious grievances and the numerical superiority of Catholic potentates, further hampered the Diet, which dispersed in October 1641, having made no transformative decisions. The Regensburg amnesty, contrary to the Prague amnesty of 1635, would be applicable to all Germans. They needed only to accept it. Yet the suspension of its terms until all estates had joined the Emperor, and Ferdinand's inability to compromise in the meantime, meant that the war would go on. Indeed, the war had reached the Diet itself in January 1641, when several detachments of Johann Banner's cavalry arrived outside Regensburg where the Emperor was actually present. With the River Danube frozen at that time, Banner's forces crossed over and threatened the Emperor's authority more directly than ever before. The emergency passed with the melting of the Danube's ice, and everyone sighed a deep sigh of relief, but still... It had been a close-run thing. 
Ferdinand wasn't able to rely on the Danube's ice, really, but he also couldn't rely on his German vassals to arrive at a united peace, and if he also could not rely on Spain for further financial or military support, as Madrid buckled under two sinister revolts, perhaps the best approach would be to negotiate with the French or Swedes directly, and to work at separating one from the other. The observations of Chancellor Oxenstierna and Cardinal Richelieu certainly did not suggest an unbreakable allied bond. The two remained suspicious of one another. The French, as Oxenstierna had opined, seemed willing to let Sweden down and cover their tracks with feeble excuses after the event. The three-year Treaty of Hamburg would expire in mid-March 1641, and if the Emperor managed to insert his negotiators in between the two allies in the meantime, he might achieve a diplomatic coup of the First Order. The problem, though, was the cost. Sweden's price for peace was far higher than Ferdinand was willing to pay. It included all of Pomerania and the Elector of Brandenburg's public acknowledgement of Sweden's right to overlordship of that region. Since Ferdinand was required to defend the interests of Brandenburg according to the terms of the Peace of Prague, the Emperor couldn't concede Pomerania to Sweden even if he'd wanted to. However, as Regensburg was in session, a great wrinkle presented itself. On the 1st of December 1640, George William of Brandenburg, that guy we've been forced to deal with since the beginning of this conflict, died, succeeded by his son, Frederick William. The exit of one stalwart participant of the war was a significant event, but more significant still was the man who was now leading Brandenburg in his late father's stead. Frederick William would receive the epithet of the Great Elector in his own lifetime, largely for the exploits he sponsored which propelled Brandenburg and in time Prussia to new heights of power. Power in early 1641 was perhaps the last thing in the new Brandenburg Elector's grasp, so Frederick William worked towards a simple enough goal on paper, that of removing the most immediate threat to Brandenburg by making peace with Sweden. This quest, while simple, was actually brimming with consequences. If Brandenburg exited the war with Sweden, the Emperor wouldn't feel obliged to fight for Brandenburg's rights in Pomerania. Then, perhaps, if Ferdinand would consent to handing Pomerania over, Sweden might exit the war and France would be left alone to face the combined might of the Habsburgs. Unfortunately for Ferdinand, a potential coup was not around the corner. He delayed and procrastinated rather than sacrificed Pomerania, likely because he hoped that Johann Banner, last seen retreating from Regensburg in January, might be defeated and destroyed by Imperial forces, since, after all, his army wasn't all that big. If Banner could be removed from the equation, Sweden's position would be greatly undermined, and the Emperor would only have to part with a small portion of the Pomeranian inheritance. But by waiting, Ferdinand had allowed that precious window of opportunity to close. By April 1641, when the Emperor had decided it was worth ridding himself of Pomerania to also be rid of the Swedes, Oxenstierna's hands were tied. A few weeks before, indeed, the Swedish Chancellor had agreed to renew the Treaty of Hamburg, which was done in June of that year. The Emperor had missed his chance to divide and conquer, and from this point on in the war, Neither France nor Sweden would or could make a separate peace. There would have to be a conference involving both powers, or the war would go on. 
And that war is, of course, not quite finished yet. So I hope you'll join me next time as we continue this story. The last few episodes, we're on episode 68 now, and there's about 14 or 15 left. So yeah, it's been a brilliant time and a fascinating story. And I hope you'll join me next time for that installment. Thanks so much, guys. Make sure if you want to support this show or get in touch, you join our Facebook group or follow me on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Thanks so much. I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.